Welcome to the podcast, Don't Forget Me, about the life and times of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Chapter 3. That's so interesting. I'm interested, too, in that... Is it fair to say that one of the reasons your childhood was rough was that your dad was erratic? He was the tough guy, kind of, wasn't he? Yeah. So it's interesting that he was a part of your introduction to music. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, the thing you were escaping the from. The yin and the yang. The yin <laughs> and the, the yang. Ugly. That's right. Every, and you, every, every bad side has a good side, and vice versa. That was... Yeah. The good side was he gave me my sanctuary. The, the bad side was all the other things he did. Uh, he made you need a sanctuary. Yes, to, to really need a sanctuary. <laughs> And my mother, uh, she if today she would have been diagnosed as bipolar. Mm-hmm. All of all of my aunts said that she she was totally she was totally different from all of my aunts, and uh, she was cut of a different cloth, as they used to say mm-hmm. about my mom. And so when you. Um went to synagogue, was there something about the, when you first started to go to synagogue, and I don't know if that was, did you feel more a religious calling that was different from what you were, or did you want another sanctuary, or did you, and, and the music in the synagogue, was it the fact that it was, um, that there was harmony, that, well, like, it, what it, part of it appealed to you? Well, when, when you're in synagogue, and when, when you go to shul mm-hmm. to, to pray, the, most of what you're doing is singing. Mm-hmm. All of the chants, all of the sections of the Bible that you're talking about, uh, all of the prayers are all melodic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So it's, they say about Jews, you start, we, we, we sing when we're, we're born, we sing when we die, we sing when we get married, we sing when we get bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, all, it's all in the song. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a song of religion, but it's a song nonetheless. And I reckon it was more for me the song than it was the religion. That's why I went. To, that's why I, I love going to sing in the synagogue. Yeah. got a chance to sing. Wow, I bet you rocked your bar mitzvah. <laughs> yes, I did. As a matter of fact, <laughs> tell me. About I it. really did. I want to hear it. I used it. I can't. I can't. I didn't remember the words over Sure, memory, but you don't have to do it right now. Yeah, perform but, it, but like, but you remember? Did you? And did you get um, praise for that? Did I you? got standing ovation. They came nice. around, and, and it, it, it was eerie because we had just moved from Brooklyn to the to the Bronx. I was twelve and a half. I was in in between my my bar mitzvah uh, tutoring, so I had to go to a new tutor. Along, learn something totally different uh, from another rabbi's son, mm-hmm. and six months later, I I aced, uh, I aced it. As they say, <laughs> yeah, they came over. And you brought the house down. I did. I brought the house down <laughs> as usual. Well done. <laughs> right. I'm interested too what you were talking about with sort of feeling like an outsider and trying to find a home, and I'm interested in how that plays out. I don't want to go too far ahead, but what was it like when you started? Is it Unless there's something you want to get into before he beats the fellow mm-hmm. band members um, or Francine, but is but the, I was interested in like what made you feel like a crew, like what made you come together um, emotionally and in, like in, event-wise we know a little bit of, yeah. but like what it felt like and did did it feel? I know you were sort of like arbitrarily like you say like you were like you want to sing great right. come on in. Well, before that, you know, when I when I came to the Bronx and yeah. we went to junior high school, I joined the, the choir, mm-hmm. and um, it, it, at McCombs Junior High School they used they call it eighty two. 
which was as junior high school 82 and every all the kids called it 82 did you go to 82 well, yeah i went mm -hmm. to 82. uh it's just like they call the projects cedric if you did you live in Cedric? Yeah, it wasn't, you know, such and such housing a project that was Cedric. Uh, but I joined the choir and uh, became very active in the choir. And as a matter of fact, Jackie Morgan, who was my baritone, came from the choir. Mm -hmm. And that's why he was really selected, even though he was on his way out of the community center when Steve Wall and I started to recruit uh, uh, members for the group. Uh, I knew that he could sing, and that's why, you know, when Susie came out, I said, I, I said, you don't have to audition. I know you can sing. You can be my, you can be our baritone. <laughs> sing this. Okay, you can be the baritone. You're the baritone. Mm. But uh, when I really started to get into music, after we joined the, the, the choir, my, my best friend, Steve Wilde, when I came to the Bronx, um, I was de devastated that we moved from Brooklyn mm -hmm. uh, and really stayed in my house aside from going to school for almost a year before I even ventured outside. So finally one day I'm in my bedroom and there's a knock on my bedroom door and the door opens and my mother's standing there with this kid. <laughs> he, says, uh, he says to me, you're going to sleep all day? Could we get the fuck out of here? <laughs> that was my introduction to Steve Wilde. And Steve, had, Steve was uh, going to music and art at the time. Uh, so we started hanging out, and we started singing. As a matter of fact, during my, uh, my brother's bar mitzvah, Steve and I became the, uh, he was the piano player, and I did uh, an hour and a half or two hours of nonstop singing from a fake book, and we just tore the place up. <laughs> I think my brother was a little pissed off that we sort of um, took his thunder away, but we just sang, and I, you know, everybody loved it. And, and so then, we, as we were singing, that we had a we had another friend in the building. His name was Gary Borden, and Gary Borden also went to music and art high school. Um, he was Gary Borden was, I think, probably the first gay individual I ever came across. And we, he was all of uh, 16, 15 mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, but he was at the opera. Mm -hmm. So we were singing, we were singing operas, we were singing trios of songs, and we went from apartment to apartment. Uh, I remember Christmas, Christmas Eve, three Jewish boys went around singing Christmas carols to all of the, all of the uh, neighborhood in front of their windows <laughs> that whole Christmas, Christmas Eve. Uh, and then one day, Steve and I, we decided to write a song. So we wrote a song called Don't Forget Me. Um, and I know the melody. I can't sing it for you right now because I, I truly don't have the words. How uh, old were you then? What's that? But how old were you then when you and Steve were? Uh, uh, 15. 15. We wrote the for, our first song together. And I have the music. I have the lyric and uh, at home. And um, it, it was that's strange because um, I had a conversation with my brother just two days ago. And we were talking about the old times. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I said, because, you know, we had, Steve and I had a falling out, and then my brother became best friends with Steve Wilde. And um, so we were talking about Steve, and he said, I said to him, do you remember we even wrote a song together? He said, yeah, you wrote a song called Don't Forget Me. Oh. And I said, really? How do you know that? <laughs> he says, I can tell you the first verse. And he actually, he actually recited the first verse to a song that I don't even remember all the words to. I said, oh, my God. That, he said, yeah. And don't you remember that I formed my own singing group? 
I never do that. Hmm. In all these years, I never hmm. do that because he, uh, you know, he. I was the big brother, and he wanted to do what I wanted to do. He became a drummer, hmm. and then uh, played in the Catskills. But uh, all these years, what have I been telling you? Yeah, I know. Stay in school, get two educations. I know. That's right. This is my life, not yours. This is not for you. No guns. I first met Sonny in 1960. I was nine years old. He was the number one man in the neighborhood. And as I grew, he grew in power. He became a boss. And I was his friend. In a world called the Bronx. I'm your father, I love you. You're breaking my heart. Sonny, trust me. That man can never trust anybody. The sooner you know that, the better. He was caught in a tug of war between his hardworking father. I tell you something to go to school, to go to You don't understand. It's not what you say, it's what he sees. It's the clothes, it's the cars, it's the money. I treat that kid like he's my son. He ain't your son, he's my son. And the man who owned the neighborhood. Don't you trust anybody? No. It's a horrible way to live. For me, it's the only way. Is it better to be loved or feared? I would rather be feared. Because fear lasts longer than love. What was I gonna do? Run away? Make people think I got no heart? I mean, what makes you think you're so special? He'll hurt you like anybody. Sometimes hurting somebody ain't the answer. I know who you are, Sonny, and I know what you could do. This time you're wrong. You don't fool the man's family. So what are you gonna do? Fight this? Stay away from my son! De Niro, Chaz Palminteri. You worry about yourself, your family, and the people that are close to you. That's what it comes down to. A Bronx Tale. When I start listening to all of this material and reading about Steve, reading Steve's words, but also reading about Steve, one of the things that struck me was the Bronx has always been displayed as sort of a stereotype in television and movies and even books. Steve's take on the Bronx is a lot like his take on the people. Like he talks about these kids that he's around, that he's running around with, and they've got a gay kid in the group and they've got a black kid in, in the group. And when we get to the satellites and the Cavaliers, they, they're, they're biracial groups. There's multiple members of different races, all from these neighborhoods. They're interesting characters in and of themselves in the lives that these kids lived. So we had the, the characters, I knew that those were going to come as we talked and, and as we went through the material, because there was Steve Wilde and then there was Steve's brother and, you know, Steve himself. But when you really, when you start some kind of project and you're looking at it and going, okay, is this a series? Is this, is this going to be a movie? At one point, we'd even consider, like, is this something that's like a hybrid? It's like live action and animation. You have to have a place. And... I think one of the things that struck me right away about this story was the setting, not just the the setting itself, but the way that these kids lived in the Bronx, specifically how Steve saw them living in the Bronx and how Steve saw the Bronx. It was different from anything that I had ever seen about that section of New York and that time. And 
if you go back to them, there's a lot of stereotypes that exist that this story breaks. So there's no, there, there's definitely father and son dynamics, uh, in, in some of the story, and there's the brother dynamics, and then there's the neighbor to neighbor dynamics. Um, there's no gangster dynamics in this story. Well, I mean, I guess some of the record executives were sort of, like some of their actions were, were fairly gangster, but, in spite of that, I was really interested in a Bronx story that didn't involve the mafia. It's such a sort of a worn out trope at this point. Although that's some of the greatest cinema we've ever seen with the Bronx tale and Godfather. But this story was a lot smaller. This, this took a very specific piece of the Bronx and it made that little piece larger than life. And that was fascinating to me that we're breaking not the stereotypes of a time and the type of kid and stereotypes on how music got started, but also stereotypes on the setting. That's, it's very rare that you get to do that. And, and we definitely get to do that in this story based on Steve's take on what he thought of the Bronx. Most of this story takes place around the Sedgwick Projects, and Steve has included the history of the Sedgwick Projects in his own writing. Major General John Sedgwick was one of the most revered commanders of the Union Army during the Civil War. He was a Connecticut native and the son of a Revolutionary War general. Sedgwick had graduated from West Point in 1837. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Sedgwick was a major with 24 years' experience, having fought extensively in the Seminole War and the Mexican War. He was nicknamed Uncle John by his troops. He led his men valiantly in several battles, including Bull Run, Antietam, and Gettysburg, where Sedgwick's cunning strategy and his arrival are credited with turning the tide of the battle in favor of the Union. Now, Sedgwick is also famous for his last words, uttered at the Battle of Spotsylvania. When his men sought cover from Confederate sharpshooters, Sedgwick assured them that the rebels couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And then moments later, he was shot under his left eye and he died instantly. New York City acquired the property for the Sedgwick Playground on March 18, 1946, by deed of purchase as part of the Sedgwick House's housing project. The playground opened on October 15, 1951, and today it has two handball courts, three basketball hoops, and numerous swings, slides, and seesaws. The playground and the housing complex are located in the Bronx neighborhood known as Morris Heights. This land was acquired before the American Revolution by Richard Morris. He was the second chief justice of New York State. During the 19th century, Lewis and Fordham Morris raised prize cattle on the land. A dock on the Harlem River and a railroad station helped to shape the neighborhood's development. And later, trolley lines connected the area to the subways, and the neighborhood became more prosperous, developing rapidly. The name Morris appears frequently throughout the history and geography of the Bronx. The name originally dates back to Richard Morris in 1662, who was a prominent landowner who settled on 2,000 acres of land in the southeastern Bronx and, with his brother Louis, was a major importer of sugar and flour. His great-grandson, Louis Morris, was the third and final Lord of the Manor of Morsania. He was an ardent patriot who served in the Continental Congress, and he signed the Declaration of Independence. His half-brother, Governor Morris, 
was the greatest Moor's fault. He was considered witty and urbane, and he was renowned as an eloquent speaker, a brilliant writer, a prominent politician, and a major intellect. Despite a career that included a stint in the Continental Congress, several years in the United States Senate, and an ambassadorship to France, his greatest achievement was in writing the final draft of the United States Constitution, giving the document its elegant language and coherent form. Today, the Bronx is spotted with the name Morris. This includes the neighborhoods of Morsania, Morse Heights, Morse Park, which is derived from the Morse Park racetrack, as well as Morse High School, the first public high school in the country, and an architectural landmark. Also included in the book is an award-winning essay by Mary Ellen Constant, To My Old Bronx Street with Love. It comes on a soft breeze whispering around my ears, and it always makes me smile as the childhood memories drift back. It's the sound of a baseball game floating through the warm air, the boys of summer, and it conjures up memories of languid afternoons, curtains leaning out open windows, lemonade, and sitting with my friends on our stoop in the Bronx. I remember so many sounds from the old Bronx of the 40s and the 50s. The air raid sirens, the early morning clink of the milkman's bottles, the mid-morning hum and thump of the iceman delivering ice blocks for the older tenements without refrigerators, the groan of garbage trucks, and the clatter of cans, the whir of the scissor and knife sharpener, the clip-clop of the horses pulling wagons full of fruits and vegetables, the cries of the junk dealer, the rattle of the seltzer man's bottles, the bells of the ice cream truck, and the endless games of stickball and ring alivio. A favorite memory is the bell-like tinkle of water cascading from the ornate pink Italian marble fountain that accompanied us as we played on the green grass and dappled shade under the trees in Crotona Park. Of course, I cannot forget the thunder and squeal of the 3rd Avenue L as it barreled down between the 180th and Tremont stations. My father would never forgive me because he drove one of the trains. Our block, Washington Avenue between 178th and 179th streets, one block north of Tremont Avenue, was a bustling and happy place. It's sandwiched between the large Italian neighborhood of Arthur Avenue on the east and the Jewish neighborhood of the Concourse. We were a mini League of Nations. We had Italians, Germans, Jews, English, native New York Protestants, Scots, a Greek tailor, a Chinese laundry, one black couple, Turks and Irish, most of whom were new arrivals. In the late 1950s, the sounds of Spanish were heard on our streets as Puerto Ricans began to move in. They were all part and parcel of and entwined in the fabric of society that was our neighborhood. They all just belonged. Our block had an ebb and flow, constant as the tide. Starting around 6 a.m., men in business suits of blue-collar uniforms, women in dresses, coats in cool weather, Hats, gloves, and high heels emerged from the houses walking towards the New York Central. The colorful, breezy Tremont Avenue trolleys or the 3rd Avenue L. Next came the children. Public school children headed north to PS 59. Uniformed Catholic children headed south to St. Joseph's Grammar School. If the weather was nice, late morning brought out the mothers with infants and toddlers, congregating under trees, comparing notes about babies, and trading recipes. Some mothers pushed their baby carriages to Crotona or Echo Park with their knitting and pots full of peas and potatoes to be shelled 
or peeled for supper while the children played. Late afternoon brought the homeward trek of the working force, the call of kids to dinner, and in warm weather, the evening social sessions on the sidewalk. And then the night workers emerged as the cycle continued. On the weekends, the atmosphere changed. On Saturday, our Jewish neighbors dressed in their best clothes and headed for their synagogue. Sunday morning brought crowds of dressed-up families heading to the various denominations of churches in our little neighborhood world. Sunday afternoons were generally quiet and reserved for family activity. My own family was Irish. My maiden name is Murphy. My father immigrated from Ireland in 1926. My mother came from Ireland in 1929. They both lived in Manhattan until they married and moved to the Bronx in 1937. My father was a motorman on the 3rd Avenue L for 35 years. I was born in St. Anne's Hospital in the South Bronx on April 10, 1938. I went to St. Joseph's Grammar School at 1946 Bathgate Avenue. After graduation, I attended Cathedral High School in Manhattan. We lived at 1972 Washington Avenue. My mother and father, they never left the Bronx. My mother lives in St. Patrick's home on Moshula Parkway. She's 90 years old. My father, he's deceased. My family Sundays after early morning church were days of leisure and sociability, a complete departure from the working week. They were spent in either Cretona or Bronx Park, meeting with aunts, uncles, and cousins, picnicking, rowing rented boats full of kids on Indian Lake, or walking through the botanical garden and preserved Indian forest of Bronx Park, always dressed in our Sunday finery. Life was so much simpler then, with Prestiges of the Victorian age still in place, a Norman Rockwell painting. Maybe it was just the golden years of childhood. One hot, humid afternoon, my father, after a strenuous rowing session on Cretonas Park, Indian Lake, removed his shirt and picnicked in his t-shirt. He received a summons from an undercover plainclothes parkman for improper attire. He had to appear in court and pay a dollar for his only transgression. There were no TVs or air conditioners in those days, so when the hot weather arrived, people, in what little spare time they had hung out their windows or sat on their stoops of their sidewalks watching the panorama on the street. It seemed that this army of people from all over the world knew everyone else's joys and tribulations and were intimately involved. The old and new Americans were all sharing and getting to know one another. Mom, I had the most delicious dinner at Mrs. Mayola's. She called it lasagna. Well, if it was that good, I'll ask Anna how she made it. Two weeks later, Mom, beaming, carried a heavy platter to the dinner table and proudly presented her lasagna, as she always called it with her Irish brogue. Lasagna. Mom, there are hard-boiled eggs in this. Well, Anna said to add eggs. Did she say you should hard-boil them? Timmy, you know that little fellow with the red hair and the freckles that's always in here? You mean Jeffrey? That's the one. Ask him where his parents are from. He might be related to us. Jeffrey's not related to us, Dad. Why do you have to be so stubborn? Just ask him. Jeffrey's Jewish, Dad. The kid with the red hair and freckles is Jewish? Yep. That Musty is such a nice guy setting up the block party in this backyard. But I don't understand that kind of a name. What kind of a name is Musty? Musty means stale or moldy. Well, it doesn't mean that in Turkish, Dad. Musty is short for Mustafa. Oh. Mr. Moore, my mama had twins yesterday. A boy and a girl. Your family is so nice to our family. Mama and Dad would be honored if you would choose a boy's name. Won't he have a Chinese name? No, you pick a nice American name. Tell mom and dad we're honored, and Thomas would be a nice name. So Tommy Chen was named. Another family must have had the honor of picking the baby girl's name, which was Rose, also known on our block as Rosie. Our neighbors across the street were never called black. They were just friendly. Pat you on the back. Paul and his sweet-natured wife, Hattie. They were good neighbors. They were good friends. 
On warm days, our street resounded with activity, as crowds of children played hide-and-seek, stickball, potsy, pick-up sticks, kick-the-can, jacks, roller-skated, or rode their bikes. Occasionally, there would be a quiet spell, where we would sit on our stoop, sharing confidences, watching life on our block pass by. Since almost everyone came from a large family, where the older children watched the younger ones, there was always a mixture of ages. A five-year-old could be heard discussing such concerns as not liking his or her name, or having too many freckles, with a 10 or 11-year-old who was quite sympathetic and understanding. The younger children were taken by the older ones to movies, bazaars, parades, and everything else that went on. It was not unusual to see two budding teenagers holding hands and heading for a Saturday matinee, each with a string of younger brothers and sisters in tow. Of course, the gang of kids observing always knew whose older brother liked whose older sister. The older kids always knew the reply of their parents without asking, You can go, but you have to take your brothers and sisters. None of the older kids seemed to mind, as there was genuine love and caring between the different ages. Our large families gave us a strong sense of identity. Neighbors knew you as one of the Murphys, the Diorios, the Lakes, or the Silversteins. A teenage boy could be at bat in an intense game of stickball when someone would run up and tell him his younger brother was in a fight down the street and was losing. Without the slightest hesitation, he would drop his bat and head off to rescue his brother. Not a word of complaint would be uttered by the other players because each and every one of them would have done the same thing. Family was always the first priority. The work ethic was strongly instilled in Bronx kids. They took work whenever they could find it. Underage girls babysat. Young boys had newspaper routes, or could be seen working at local fruit and vegetable stands or grocery stores. When they could get working papers, they headed to Woolworths, Cushman's Bakeries, MetLife, Safeway, A&P, and the host of businesses who would hire high school students part-time. College was everyone's goal, especially the boys, and most made it. No New York story of the 40s or 50s would be complete without a local ice cream parlor. That large, picturesque, chocolate-smelling emporium of counters and booths, overhung with stained-glass lamps, where kids and families met after church on Sunday, adults popped into after movies, teenagers went to on dates, or just strolled down to the evening to sip a chocolate egg cream or a lime ricky and talk. It was a time in life when a kid's hardest decision was whether to have the whipped cream or marshmallow topping. Today, you can have both. My dear Uncle John, who was born in 1890, always said, someone who thinks the old days were great didn't live in them. I always thought my uncle was the smartest, neatest, most hardworking, most fearless, happiest person I ever knew. Outside of his younger brother, my father, I maintained my feeling about my uncle's intelligence, even though he was a diehard New York Giants fan, when the New York Yankees were glorious, and the Giants never won a game. Now, my childhood days in the Bronx are the old days, and I have to disagree with my Uncle John. I did live in the old days, and I still think that they were great. As time marched on and the kids grew up, the games stopped and the sounds changed, as did our street in the face of progress. You can never really go home. The kids are scattered all over the country now, and indeed all over the world. They grew up, and they went on to become teachers, doctors, dentists, brokers, writers, secretaries, priests, nurses, rabbis, housewives, ministers, musicians, business owners, everything else you can think of, many of them achieving extraordinary success. American children coming from such diverse backgrounds, they played together, they wandered in and out of, ate and slept in each other's homes. 
Growing up, just friends, without labels, they learned as children that people, whatever language they spoke, wherever they came from, whatever house they chose to worship in, when you went into their homes, they were just like you. The old Bronx and its kids had a culture all their own. My brother John, a few years ago, walking down a Manhattan street with his Canadian-born wife, who was raised in Delaware, warned her to watch out for the Johnny Pump. That's a fire hydrant, she replied. No, that's a Johnny Pump. You're nuts. Everyone calls that a fire hydrant. And Patty laughed. In one of life's many strange coincidences, John's red-headed, freckled Jewish-American counterpart, Jeffrey, and his wife walked by at just that moment. The two old pals, both in their 50s, recognized each other, embraced, introduced their wives, inquired about families, laughingly shared a few old memories, and parting, John turned and asked, Jeff, will you tell Patty what that is? That? Jeffrey replied. Why do you ask? Everybody knows. That's a Johnny Pump. Too long ago.